Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Years ago, I worked for a charitable organization called the Children's Holiday Foundation based in the United Kingdom. Our mission was to provide memorable experiences and trips of a lifetime to terminally ill children. The concept was similar to that of Give Kids the World or the Wish Foundation, but with some important differences. For many of the children, their trip of a lifetime included a trip to Disney and the Magic Kingdom. This was before there was more than the original two in the United States, in California and Florida. So delivering on that wish meant international travel. There were many people involved and a swathe of sponsors from Pan Am, in case that's lost on you. They used to be the dominant airline in the United States, but went bankrupt in 1991 and its assets were swallowed by Delta Airlines, along with Anheuser-Busch, Give Kids the World and many more. With the added complexity and strain of international travel, our model took the children with a group of volunteers who all gave their time to take care of these kids for the duration. There was an added benefit that the parents' families got a break as well from caring for their sick children. The volunteers were made up of qualified professionals like myself, nurses, physiotherapists and others which for many of our group included a large number of police officers who gave up their time to give the kids a great experience. My first trip as the physician of record and also temporarily appointed the guardian for all 18 sick and terminal children was hair raising. I found myself dealing with the US healthcare system for the treatment of a broken bone, billing and customs where I had to transport controlled drugs that were required for some of these children. After one particularly stressful day, there was a memorable incident where the waiter refused to serve me a beer because I did not have my ID with me. Hmm. The makeup of the children and the conditions they had was varied, but at the time, cystic fibrosis was a terminal illness and survival rates were poor and did not extend much past late teens at best. Things have changed dramatically thanks to some amazing work and advances by a number of groups. But above all, not just the advances, but the mutual teamwork, learning and cooperation that's changed the trajectory of this disease. In fact, there were some centres of excellence that demonstrated in their data a significantly better survival rate than other institutions, even though the basic approach and medical treatments were similar. In the true spirit of medicine and patient focus, these teams shared and worked together, raising the outcomes for everyone. It is this spirit of cooperation that we explore this week. 
Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Alan Lassiter, a physician and principal at ECG. Hi, Alan. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Nick. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So excited to have a discussion around um, the underserved. And this is specific. uh, Given your background, history, training, um, we're talking about pediatric underserved, so children. And in the United States, I think there's a shocking statistic that maybe not everybody knows, and that's the coverage for somewhere of the order of half, 50% of that population is paid for with Medicaid. And pretty much anybody that knows anything about the healthcare system knows that Medicaid does not pay terribly well. You have had the fortune of building a number of programs to serve generally the pediatric community. How on earth are we gonna make any of this economically viable Nick, let me just try to answer that question as simply as I can. Number one, you first of all have to recognize the impact of that reimbursement situation. You know, Medicaid does not pay well, it does not reimburse well, and it does not cover the cost of delivering healthcare, period. And if you have 50% of your population served by children's hospitals and children providers that is covered by Medicaid, then the only way that you can solve that problem is to look at it from a systemic standpoint, a system-wide view that approaches how you deliver care in an economically viable way and also care that is excellent care clinically. In my experience, the way that you do that using the system approach is you bring every payer, every provider, every player into this marketplace so that we can work together as a team and as an organization, even if it's a community organization to deliver care. What does that mean practically? It means that you have to look at pediatric care in the full spectrum. You have to move from primary care to secondary care to tertiary care to quaternary care because it works as a system. We work as a system and care must be delivered in that way. Statement number one. If you can do that, then you can begin to develop efficiencies in care delivery through care model redesign, through handoffs, through things that really help you to be more efficient, that minimize costs, that maximize clinical outcomes in a positive way. And you can begin to reduce the cost of care and come closer to addressing that deficit. The other thing that is really critical to understand is that pediatrics is heavily dependent on philanthropy. You have to have people stepping in in addition to what the government or the commercial payers pay and augmenting the deficit by philanthropy. And we can talk later about how do you do that. But the, but the important thing to understand is that this is a we problem. It's not a physician problem. It's not a hospital problem. It's not a healthcare system problem in the classic sense. It is a global problem, a community problem, and it can be solved if, in fact, we work from that perspective. So before we dive into, you know, the funding and the economics and the system, I want to just go back to one specific element of this that's maybe not apparent with the raw statistic of 50%. And that's the fact that, you know, most people think of underserved inequity as a, you know, small subset, the homeless, the, you know, the people that have little or no income, you know, that, that cadre of folks. But when I think 50%, that's extending into a broader community and people that I would look at and say, well, 
surely they're getting health care. Am I right? And if so, what's the impact of this? So, so it's a really great point that you're making here. And that is that, yes, there are those conditions that you talked about. The issue of illiteracy, the lack of transportation, the lack of clean uh, water, the lead in the pipes, all those things that we call social determinants of health. These are things in the environment that really drive the outcomes from a medical and personal as well as a social outcome. But the, but the reality is, Nick, in addition to that, even those that have those issues addressed, there are a whole host of patients that have other things that need to be considered. For example, the issue of chronic diseases in pediatrics is, is a huge issue. Um, the reason that we have to address that is because that number is growing. Those chronic conditions can be the common chronic conditions that you think of in terms of diabetes, uh, seizure disorder, things like that. And, and there's a whole list of those. But it also involves things like obesity. The obesity epidemic is huge. And so you have to be able to address that. And then you move from that into what is now more widely recognized. And that's the issues of behavioral health. What do we do with our children? What do we do with our adolescents who are facing a mental health crisis, a behavioral health crisis that has not been addressed? So when you look in terms of underserved, the underserved can certainly be what it's a cliche. It can be the down and out, but it can also be the up and out. Uh, those are things that we really have to recognize and understand how across the system we can deliver care more effectively to the patients that we're called to serve. So, uh, you know, interesting points around, you know, that broad group and specifically SDOH, which I think, you know, repeatedly covered. I think folks understand, but, you know, this broader group of chronic conditions, we're seeing that across a huge spectrum with young individuals. And I, I'm using yes. that as the broadest term that are both developing disease, you know, some are, you know, uh, genetic, so diabetes type one, for example, that, you, you know, you reference, but obviously if you layer on obesity, that brings additional uh, potential complications, you've managed to build programs, I think, successfully. Yes. What in there, did you find allowed you to build something that was economic? You've talked about the system wide, but you know, you mentioned the philanthropy. Where were you finding the scope to be able to do this successfully? Yeah. You know, Nick, let me tell you just a really quick story that will explain that. Uh, I won't name this, the system. I wish I could, but but let me, people may recognize what this is, but there was a children's hospital, and I can tell you that it was in Texas, that overnight lost its uh, specialist support, lost its surgical support, lost its OB support, lost its academic standing, and suddenly was in a crisis. It was the crown jewel of this very large and growing community in the top 10 MSA in the nation. And so they reached out and said, we need help. And when you start talking about building a system literally from the ground up at that point, you have to have a significant commitment from everyone, just like we've talked about. It starts with understanding the imperative. Why must we do this? It then moves to establishing the vision. What are we trying to accomplish by bringing the players together to address those we're called to serve? And then you have to have the leaders that are involved in this case, it was 
everything from physicians to executives to community to national leaders. And you bring those people together. The other thing that's important is that we're all in this together. And in building this system, we brought together fierce competitors to be able to respond to this crisis. We brought together people who were antagonists to this. We brought together people who were concerned but didn't understand what their role might be. And, and then you began to cascade down by bringing people together. What we did at the end of the day is we brought together a system that linked together the current children's hospital. In fact, it became a new children's hospital. It was renovated and, and resurrected. We brought together specialists, primary care, urgent care, FQHC, OB maternal fetal medicine. So when we talk about the holistic system, we brought all of those players together. In addition, we reached out to two significant players ranked in the top 10 in US News and World Report in an adjacent MSA that's probably the third largest MSA in the nation. And we linked with a research institution that was there. They in fact provided the staffing for the hospital and then we reached out to another institution that was expert at OB maternal fetal medicine. That is good, but this leads us to the next part of the question that you asked. How about philanthropy? One of the things that was so powerful, the vision was so powerful that as the community rallied, the philanthropist as part of the community rallied as well. And what happened is this children's hospital, which was part of a 40 hospital international adult system, this hospital received a gift from one philanthropic contribution that was $40 million, the largest contribution in the history of this 40 hospital system. And that contribution was made to continue building out the system. But specifically, there was a subset of those dollars that was designated to deal with the epidemic, obesity, epidemic and obesity. So we had the ability to take the vision and literally the CEO of the system said, Alan, I need this vision. She went and talked to them within days that contribution was made. So you bring everyone together with a compelling vision, with a deep commitment, understanding the imperative, and you do it at a system-wide level. I, I think that's, you know, obviously inspiring, um, you know, turning around what, you know, sounded like a total disaster for the community, for employment, all, all any number of things that, you know, you would reconcile with that and say, terrible outcome. But the thing that troubles me in, in there that, you know, as I think about this in other places is, how much were you dependent on that philanthropic donation to allow for this? I, I mean, was that just yeah. gravy or was that a requirement? Because if it's a requirement, I, I'm just troubled a little bit by the need for philanthropy. I think philanthropy is great, you know, right, but right. we can't depend on it because it doesn't always arrive. Yeah, wonderful question. And interestingly, it wasn't gravy, but it wasn't essential. What it allowed is for the next phases of that system development to take place. It was not used to build the primary system that I just described. And so it was not essential. Philanthropy is crucial for growth and development, et cetera, but, but you really can use it for other purposes and that's further expansion. I think that the other part to understand, you know, I mentioned all the different players in this system that was created. For example, let me call out one of the uh, federally qualified health centers, what we call FQHCs. The FQHCs are an incredibly important part of our healthcare delivery system. Uh, they deliver care from 
pediatrics all the way to adults, from geriatrics to OB, et cetera. And what we did also is we partnered with FQHCs to know where we could actually take patients and have them be served by FQHCs. There were a couple of reasons for that. Number one is a lot of the FQHCs are placed in, in positions that are proximate to where large patient populations, Medicaid specifically, where large Medicaid populations exist. So the issue of access, they could get to the FQHCs more readily. We also leaned on the FQHCs to deliver care, knowing that they too in, in received enhanced reimbursement from the federal government to serve the population. So that was another way that we actually offset the cost. It was rationalizing care in a positive way in order to get the patients the care they needed by being proximate to where they were. And oh, by the way, the funding system also supported that as well. I, I think that's great to hear. I, I, obviously, the expansion and you know ongoing support, not to sort of knock philanthropy. I just, I, I struggle with it a little yeah. bit as a, um, a pillar for healthcare in particular, um, recognizing that, you know, I come from a system where people describe it as free, nothing is free, it, it's, yeah. not, it's free yeah. at the point of service, which I think is important to understand. And, you know, there has to be an economic model that works even in a free at the point of service. Yeah, you've yeah. sort of described that and, you know, managed to deal with that. I think the bringing together of the groups, you know, there's the buried in there is a, a, an essential component. But as I think about pediatrics in general, you know, it's not just the underserved. It's not just this inequity but we start to arrive at some of the more difficult elements within here. And you know, you, you're seeing more and more rare diseases. And in yes. some respects, that's personalized medicine that's identifying, we're, we're understanding more and we're individualizing these disease processes. Can we account for that? Because ultimately the investment here is worth astronomically more in the future because of the long potential future life that you can contribute to. Yeah, yeah, that is a, an incredibly important point that you're making. And the issue of rare and complex diseases or conditions, uh, tertiary quaternary types of conditions are is an important part of the understanding we have to bring to this. Uh, these in themselves are underserved. And when I talk about these conditions, we may be talking about across the country. In one case that I worked with, there are only a hundred of these conditions recognized in a year. Very small, what we call an N of 100, not many. Uh, at the same time, there may be others such as congenital heart conditions that actually have a larger population, but still at some level are underserved depending on where those patients live. And if we're going to deliver care well to this population, tertiary quaternary condition population, we have to recognize where the best care is given. And to do that, you have to take a huge database of claims over a long period of time. And you have to be able to do a comparative analysis, Nick, that says here is where the best care is delivered and why. And when you talk about best care, you know, there are many approaches to some of these rare conditions, but we look at things such as, you know, what about hospital length of stay? What about procedure revision. Let's say we had some corrective procedure on the heart, but we really see that in some places that can be done in a single intervention 
And in other cases, it may take several interventions. Who's able to do it with the fewest interventions, with the best economic, clinical, social, medical outcome, and who can do it at a cost that is reasonable and fair? And so you have to do detailed analysis. And then the question becomes, well, with that, what do we do? Well, what we find with pediatric organizations is that they're very open to understand where they can improve or where they can collaborate. And so if you have hardcore quantitative, qualitative data for these rare and complex conditions and can promulgate that and share that broadly with pediatric healthcare systems, uh, individuals, embassies, because this is an international question, then you'll begin to see a volume drive to those that deliver the best care. But as important, you see a change in approach for those who are using perhaps a more traditional or less effective approach to the care that's necessary for these conditions. You know, it, it reminds me a lot from my past um, of, of cystic fibrosis, which, you know, was a, a relatively early killer. Um, and, you know, we, we, there was not a lot of hope. But in fact, what you describe was very much what's been in place of, you know, this learning and these centers of excellence where you couldn't necessarily understand what they were doing until you went in, looked, and then distribute that information to now start to expand the access. Because that's, whilst oh. it's rare, it's not that rare. Yeah. And that is a magnificent example of what we were just discussing. Love that one. Um, so as you think about that, the, the, the area that um, is is challenging around that and I think is is cost, the economics, especially as the N decreases and N at 100, you know, in a large population, quite often these costs are um, really very large. Is yeah. there some methodology or ability to allow for the delivery of that care whilst not breaking the the general bank? Yeah, there there is. And that, that approach is really what we are talking about too, because you've got to make the economic case if you're going to do this and do it well. What is really fascinating, Nick, is that as we began to do this research, and it was, it was unique research and developed this unique capability, we saw several healthcare payers come to us and say, we want to understand this because one of the things that they want to avoid is the diagnostic journey starting one place and going to the next place, going to the next place. And then after five or six stops, you suddenly land at the right place. They understand that investing in getting those patients to the right care actually is economically beneficial to them. And so that's another way that we can approach this so that people do pay for that care. And the payers themselves are beginning to understand that. And, you know, you talked about that sort of assessment and, um, you know, finding the best care. Is that information publicly available? It is becoming publicly available. It, the reality is, is that some of what we are able to do has only been developed in the last couple of years. We have data, we have tons of data, but data that's specific to pediatrics longitudinally over a period of time and specific to these conditions, that data is really hard to come by. But as we are doing that, then we are beginning to see some changes in understanding and a, our ability to drive that transformation to the benefit of the patients we serve. So I, all in all, pediatrics, you know, our future, children, our future, the importance of this are truly not just underserved in, you know, the traditional sense, but underserved in a very broad sense. 
Um, and it sounds like teamwork and the bringing together of these groups uh, in a concerted effort to sort of help solve this problem was critical. And this opens up opportunities to really drive into personalized care that's economic. Yes, yes. Alan, Agreed. thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Nick. It has been my pleasure. Shared data, shared information, shared knowledge, and collaborative teamwork all made the difference in delivering pediatric care to everyone, breaking the economic and cost barriers and opening the doors to more cost-effective solutions more widely accessible, especially to the underserved. Your better pill to swallow is to break down the barriers of dogma and the competition in healthcare and start sharing data, insights and experience to build a truly inclusive healthcare service that meets the needs of the underserved and moves everyone one step closer to personalized and economically viable care. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, Keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.